Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and today I'm welcoming Becca Ehrlich, also known as the Christian Minimalist. Becca is an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA, living in New York City. Becca has a doctorate of ministry from United Lutheran Seminary in Gettysburg in Philadelphia, a Master of Divinity from Lutheran Theological Seminary at Philadelphia, and a Master of Arts in Theology and Ministry from LaSalle University in Philadelphia. Becca blogs about minimalism from a Christian perspective at ChristianMinimalism.com and shares inspiration and encouragement to live a more minimal life on the Christian Minimalism Facebook page. Uh, Christian Minimalism Twitter is at Jesus Minimalism, and the Christian Minimalism Instagram is also Jesus Minimalism or at Jesus Minimalism. Her book, Christian Minimalism Simple Steps for an Abundant Living, was released in May of 2021. So let's welcome Becca to the show. All right, welcome to the show, Becca Ehrlich. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Uh, I really like dancing. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> awesome, awesome. Uh, do you have a favorite dance or uh, what's your thing? Um, I was actually a dance major in college. So um, this is a thing that I've done for a good chunk of my life. But uh, most people, when like if they're a performing arts major, they don't end up going into that. They don't get to use those skills quite as much. So I get to do that, you know, on my own time when no one's watching me. <laughs> good. Well, hopefully that's a good source of uh, edu- what exercise, stress relief, entertainment, mm-hmm. all that. I bet very active things. Yeah. So all of that, right. in one ball of wax right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else? Well, actually I already asked that question. Sorry. My brain's a little fuzzy today. Uh, talk okay. about share with your, share with our listeners a little bit about your faith journey, what it looked like for you to be a Christian in the past, what that looks like today, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I actually grew up in an interfaith household. Uh, my dad is Jewish and my mom is Roman Catholic um, and I'm Lutheran. So uh, anytime we hang out, it's an interfaith experience. Yeah. Which is great. <laughs> you know, it's like we're a punchline in the making, basically. Um, and so I grew up in a household where like religion wasn't really as big a thing. Um mostly because neither of my parents were really that into their own faith traditions. Um, and so when I decided that that was something that, that I wanted to be a bigger part of my life, um, I kind of had to figure it out on my own. Um, and that was fine. And so I got really, really involved in campus ministry in college. Um, and then became Lutheran and um, started looking at seminary because I felt like that's where God was calling me. Um, And then I guess the rest is history. Uh, I found out that uh, I was given, I was working at a church doing uh, children youth work, a Lutheran church, and I was Roman Catholic. And I asked them for some literature on on some Lutheran stuff, um, just so I wasn't, you know, teaching the rosary or like purgatory to children as a (laughs) 
<laughs> Roman Catholic at a Lutheran church. Um, and I had worked at a Presbyterian church previously and like had read stuff on Reformed theology and was like, that's really interesting. Still Catholic. Um, and I had the opposite reaction when I read the Lutheran stuff. I was like, oh my gosh, like I think I'm Lutheran. So um, it's, it's kind of funny because like I'm super ecumenical in the sense of I hang out with Christians from all flavors yeah. and traditions. Um, but like my, my trajectory has been multiple different ways <laughs> of getting to where I am today. Which is the, the Lutheran versus the Catholic version of our understanding of communion. I always forget, which is the transubstantiation and which is the consubstantiation. Yeah. So transubstantiation is usually the Catholic understanding. Um, I don't know if Lutheran understanding would be like traditional consubstantiation it would be the the way lutherans like to say it is like christ is in with and under the elements um so like it's kind of that but it's kind of its own thing too okay for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about <laughs> just google like uh consubstantiation or transubstantiation uh i don't really remember it well enough so and this is not the point of the podcast but because, uh, you know, I'm ordained in a Christian church, disciple of Christ, so we make a pretty big deal of communion, but we're less sacramental about it, I guess you might say. So, well, enough hot communion talk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is a spiritual practice that's uh, something you do regularly or might recommend to others? Yeah, um, this comes as no shock when you ask me the first thing <laughs> I want people to know about me and that I like dancing. Um, moving my body in prayer is a really big thing for me. And um, especially in mainline Protestantism, that's not really a thing yeah. uh, <laughs> at all, right? Like the most you do is stand up and sit down. Maybe you kneel if you're in more a more liturgical tradition, but that's about it. Um, and so I really like being able to pray while walking, whether that be like outside or um, using a labyrinth or something like that, or dancing, uh, like a creative movement prayer type thing. Anything that gets my body moving in this while I'm also praying. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's talk about uh, what we're here to talk about today, which is Christian minimalism. And kind of tell a little bit, A, like what is minimalism? I've, I would assume most people know what it is, but just give a little definition. Talk about how you got into it, too. Yeah. So minimalism is a focus on the aspects of life that matter most and intentionally removing everything else. So it's coupled with paring down your life. And it's not just stuff, right? Like that's the first thing people usually think about. It's also time commitments and um, spending and consumption habits and me media habits. Um, anything that is not keeping you from being able to focus on what's most important. Um, and then it's also coupled with intentional living. So not living an automatic pilot or living the way we think we're supposed to or we feel like we're obligated to or expected to, um, living the way we really truly feel called to live. And basically Christian minimalism is connecting that to Christian faith and spirituality. So I discovered minimalism from a documentary on Netflix. Um, you don't expect your life to change watching Netflix, but that's exactly what happened. Uh, I, I have a chronic illness. I was having a bad health day, and usually when that happens, I... I stay pretty stationary and hang out and read or watch things. And uh, I was browsing through Netflix. I watch a lot of documentaries and Netflix suggested the original minimalism documentary from The Minimalists. They have a new one as well, but this was the original one because this was back in 2017. And I didn't know what minimalism was, but I was like, you know, it's only an hour and 15 minutes. So if it's terrible, like it's an only an hour and 15 minutes of my life that I lost. 
Uh, and I watched it and had the complete opposite reaction of like, man, I'll give this a go to like, I think this is something God is calling me to do. Um, so my husband, Will, got home from running errands and I was like, Will, you got to watch this. And he was like, Ugh. he was not excited about it at all. But he watched it. We watched it together. And he said, I think you're right. I think this is something God is calling us to do. Uh, and what happened was I noticed in the second watching of it, how they talked about meaning a lot, like the implication being, oh, when you simplify your life, you, you find meaning to your life easier, um, which makes a ton of sense to me. But I also was like, okay, well, as a Christian, like I know meaning of life is Jesus. (laughs) So, and a lot of this lines up with Jesus's teachings. And so Um, there's gotta be stuff out there. I want to know more in depth, this connection between minimalism and Christianity. And at the time there really wasn't a whole lot out there. There were like an article here and there or a blog post here or there, like a YouTube video or two, but no one was really doing it in depth. And that's sort of how I got started. Cause I was like, I can't be the only one that's interested in this intersection between the two. Um, so I'm going to start blogging and like figured it was just going to be like, you know, my five closest friends and their cats. But it actually ended up being like people were really interested in it, which is great. And I think um, it it juxtaposes nicely with Christian faith and spirituality. Just just so we're clear, like this podcast listenership is just like my mom and my siblings and their pets. So just FYI. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, though, right? Like you're still putting stuff out there. It's great. <laughs> Sorry, totally off track. I told you that was coming. Um I'm intrigued just that idea of min or I'm sorry, meaning finding in minimalism. Uh, mm-hmm. Can, can we explore that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So um, yeah. So the, the implication is right. Like you get rid of those things that are keeping you from focusing on what's most important. Then you're able to find more meaning in your life. Cause you're actually giving space for those things that create meaning in your life versus now where a lot of times we just live the way we think we have to. Um, or that we always have just cause it's easier and we don't necessarily think through like, okay, what, what is giving me meaning and purpose in life? Um, and what is, what would my life look like if my life was around that <laughs> versus like, oh, I'm doing this one thing. Cause like, I felt like I had to do this thing. I don't know. Yeah. What are, let's just talk practical real quick. Um, give me some common myths and then maybe some contrasts with like, you know, the myth is this, the reality is that kind of thing about minimalism. Yeah, there's a lot. So people usually hear minimalism and they think of like a room devoid of color with like one chair <laughs> and there's nothing else, uh, which is not the case at all. Minimalism is not a restrictive thing. It's in fact trying to find those things that are meaningful and making space for them. Uh, it's not trying to cut out anything we enjoy uh, or color or or wonderfulness in our lives. It's the opposite. It's it's bringing those things back in because we're able to focus on those things more. Um, and so that's like a myth that I usually talk about a lot. Like, obviously, I wear color. For those of you who can't see me, <laughs> I, yeah. have, I have a polka dot shirt on with like multiple colors. So <laughs> obviously, being a min- minimalist doesn't mean you have to like wear boring stuff. <laughs> and for those, uh, for, again, for those listening, I can see her bookshelf. Uh, it is fairly bare. So uh, my bookshelf behind me is fairly stuffed, uh, but hers is pretty bare, which I'm not sure if that's just a design edit or what's the word design choice or uh, a, a true to your calling as a minimalist. 
I think it's pretty accurate to me as minimalist. Like, obviously, there's stuff on on them, right? Like, there's books and there's framed photos and there's other art, art things that that I enjoy. Um, but it, they're not super full because I just don't own as many uh, books as would be needed to fill such a bookshelf here at my office. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any more common myths and truths? I guess. Yeah, the other thing I get a lot is that people think there's like a specific way you're supposed to live as a minimalist. And I try to explain to people that that's not the case. Um, it's it's prescriptive rather than restrictive, right? So like um, a single person living as a minimalist is probably going to look very different than someone who uh, lives with a spouse and has three kids. Like it's just going to look very different and that's okay. Um, and so it just depends on what your life context is and what makes sense for you. I'm writing that down, prescriptive rather than restrictive. Uh, I like that. Um, I'm curious. Now I'm forgetting what I wanted to ask you about. Um, oh, what is, just give me an example. I'm curious, like, what was something, because I'm looking back again, our our listeners can't see, but I'm, I'm seeing uh, Becca's behind her is a bookshelf with some books, some framed pictures. You know, I think about, I moved about a year ago, and, you know, as most people do, I hauled several totes full of junk and memories from high school and early in my marriage that I don't really want to get rid of, but also like I haven't opened them in like years. You know, what what do you do with that? What's your advice? How did you experience that kind of thing? Yeah, there's a few things that have um, my husband and I have done together that we've sort of found ways to make that all work because uh, we had the same problem. We just moved to New York City and we live in, you know, a smaller two bedroom apartment here in Manhattan. And so obviously, like you can't have stuff in the way that you have in other places. <laughs> you just can't like you have to live as a minimalist in New York for the most part. Um, so finding ways to still have those things from previous eras of our life. Um, by picking like the most important things, most meaningful things to us from those eras. So for example, I have like three main things I kept from high school hmm. that, that had the most meaning to me. And that way it kind of kills two birds with one stone, right? Because like, not only are you paring it down, so you don't have as much stuff, but then you're also enjoying those meaningful things more because there's not the other things around it. So that's what we did. We kind of had the, like the rule of three and we had it for different eras of our lives. Um, we also kept reminding ourselves that the memories are not in the things. Mm. So like what we love about that is that it triggers the memory for us. So we took pictures of those things before we got rid of them, which does the same exact thing. If you look at the picture, it's, um, obviously digital clutter is a whole other conversation, but if you keep, if you keep the photos organized, it's usually pretty okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about like, you know, I'm guessing we're of the same similar age groupings. Um, you can probably remember like me back when you'd have a shoebox or whatever, just of like developed photographs. And now we just have like, I don't know, images and images on our iPhone or Android or on our computer or on the cloud. So it's funny you use that uh, digital clutter term. Um, what is... I guess I'm I'm really kind of getting stuck in practical things here because I'm I'm curious more about this. But uh, what like what? How did you? What were what was something? How how about this? Share something that was really tough and how did you come down that? Like what was your kind of like deciding factor? 
And what do you, and, and maybe, maybe more so the question I'm curious about is like, what do you think it is about stuff that Americans, probably white Americans get so attached to? And what do you think that's about? Yeah. Well, actually the, those two thoughts were going to be connected for me. So I'm glad you did both those things. So I would say the tough thing that people didn't really tell me when I started doing this. Now I will say that when people start, um, Paring down and living more minimally, a lot of times people start with stuff because if you're like middle to upper class, like that's that's what you have a lot of and it makes sense to start there. Not everybody starts there. That might not be your thing. It might be um, paring down your schedule and your time commitments, how you use your time and energy. Could be your social media usage, right? Like so everybody kind of starts different places. We started with stuff because that was our situation at the time. Um, and I didn't expect it to be as an emotional experience as it was. Um, we get so emotionally attached to stuff and it's like weird. (laughs) It's just weird. It's just stuff. And I just remember being attached to like the, the stupidest things that like, I don't think about anymore. I can't even think of an example because like they're gone. (laughs) I've never thought about them again. Right. Um, but I was like, so fearful of getting rid of them. And I think a lot of it is like the, at its core is we don't trust God to provide. And so we think we have to keep all these things around us, um, just in case, because like, we have to make sure we have what we need at all times. Hmm. Um, which is like really interesting to think about. And so when you're doing this work of paring down your life, you also have to do the emotional, psychological, mental work of like, why did I accumulate in the first place? Um, And it's like confronting those demons in us, for lack of a better term. And it's not fun. And it doesn't feel good because you're like, if you really want to make lasting change, you have to confront why you did it in the first place so you can work through that. Um, And for me, I I started doing it, especially when I started getting sick. And we didn't know what was wrong with me because it like filled this void for me when when I didn't like physically feel good. Um, So finding better ways to cope with that when I when I'm not feeling well. Um, was part of my my working through all of that. But obviously, it's going to be different for everybody. A lot of times we are trying to fill the void um, that we think stuff or time commitments or whatever is going to feel like feeling like we have a sense of belonging or loved or whatever. It's usually like those things that like consumer culture tells us <laughs> it'll fill, but it doesn't actually fill those, right? <laughs> So yeah, that was that was a tough thing that I, I wasn't quite expecting. And so I think that's one of the things to think about to connect it to your second question. Um, thinking through the fact that like we do get emotionally attached to things and we're um, loss adverse. That's like a very real thing in, in human psychology. And so how can we hurdle that and, and get past that so that we can live a more minimal life? I... I'm thinking about, you know, the the TV shows, the quarters or whatever, when they come in and clean out, you know, uh, someone's home that's just trashed. And, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Like if you're not dealing with the underlying problem, like right. it's not really going to change. And I appreciate, I appreciate your emphasis on that. I also appreciate kind of just your emphasis on not just stuff. Cause I imagine like, you know, a full confession, like I live in the burbs and I have a fairly good sized home and I have a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And for me, like, uh, it's just like, I want to be able to make time to use the stuff I have. Like I have a, like I, I like to bike, so it doesn't do me any good if my bikes are just hanging on the garage ceiling all t- all the time. Cause I'm too busy not to use them. So I appreciate that, uh, the, the, the thought of paring down more than just stuff, time, responsibilities, things that just, 
suck our life energy that are feeding us, right? Totally. And like we do that any like that what's so weird to me is that as human beings, we would rather like even when it's not good for us, keep living that way, <laughs> even though it would be better because it's just easier. It's easier not to have to change and confront all of that. Um, so like getting yourself on the on the wagon, if you will, to like actually get this going and, and keep going is is a big deal. Yeah. Um, talk about kind of, we've kind of hinted around it. Talk about how you really see this kind of correlating with Christianity and the way of Jesus. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I truly believe Jesus is a minimalist. Um, he did not travel with much, like he focused on what was most important by like focusing on the people that were in front of him, whether he was teaching or healing or, um, doing other types of ministry. Like he was really in the moment there. And that was, that was his focus. Um, he took time to go and pray and rest. Like there are multiple times where it's like, and then he went and went to pray, you know? And then like a lot of times the disciples like go and find him and they're like, people are looking for you. And he's like, that's cool. I'm praying. I'll, I'll come when I'm ready. <laughs> and that's not because he's rude. It's because he knew he needed that, that renewal and refresh time with God. Yeah. I think it's so odd that in kind of mainstream popular Christianity today, it's almost like we forget that Jesus was kind of a, you know, low income peasant and probably didn't have a lot of stuff because he couldn't afford it. Um, and it's like this kind of like, we're kind of subtly taught, I think, maybe this is unfair that like what Jesus really would have wanted if he would have lived today would be like, you know, having it all in the burbs, you know, with a big McMansion. <laughs> And you're making the the opposite point, you know, Jesus would probably be living in some small apartment in this inner city, um, riding his bike to work, probably whatever, you know, yeah. doing the opposite. He's a simple guy. Right. And I think I, it, it's interesting that you bring that up, too, because it brings up this whole concept of how the prosperity gospel has really like messed with Americans minds. <laughs> And like this idea that um, God's favor and love also means more stuff and wealth and success, um, which is like literally the opposite of what Jesus teaches. Um, constantly, Jesus is like, you know, when the disciples are arguing about who the greatest is, Jesus is like, no, like here's a child, which right now in our society is considered property. Like you need to be like them. You need to be like the, the lowest of these. Like I came to like serve, not be served. Like this is not a thing. Um, or like, you know, in when people are talking about dividing inheritances and stuff, he's like, no, like don't stockpile your crap. Like that's, <laughs> That's not how this works. Like you're going to die and then you can't take it with you. And then like, who gets your stuff? Like why, why would you bother and use all your time, energy and resources to stockpile things? Like that's not what I want you to do. Um, so he talked about not being greedy. Like he, he literally said the opposite of the prosperity gospel. And so it's really this, this awful twisting of theology to make people feel horrible really, because if that means if you don't have those things that you, you don't have God's favor. And then you have like this existential crisis of like, well, then God doesn't love me if I don't have things and wealth. And that's just, that's awful. So what's coming to mind for me is an author I had on a few seasons ago, Marlena Graves. And she wrote a book kind of themed on like kenosis, you know, that. Yeah. The emptying. Yeah. That's cool. And 
I think a theme in her book, if I'm remembering, was kind of an emptying, at least as I read it, of financially. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, is living minimally financially the hardest thing? Because I would think that entails giving away. Um, so A, tell me if I'm right, uh, or B, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, in my book, I actually um, have a section on emptying and kenosis. So I that's I think it's totally connected. Um, in Christian spirituality, one of the, uh, it's not really steps because it's not linear, but like one of the major themes is purgation, um, mm-hmm. which sounds like barfing, but <laughs> it's really <laughs> like purging in, in, in its broader sense is like getting rid of those things that are keeping us from being close to God. Um, and I think really Christian minimalism, that's what it is. It's like getting rid of those things that's keeping us from getting close to God and the most important things. So this idea that like Jesus emptied himself, right. And lowered himself. Um, like we hear in Philippians that, um, that's the same idea that we're attempting to do in Christian minimalism is like, you know, we're emptying ourselves in order to really do what God is calling us to do. Yeah. I'm thinking of, I don't know what your thoughts on this, but I'm thinking of, there seems to be this trend in some Christian circles where it's like, God has given me, like I'm speaking externally, like like God has given me resources and God has entrusted me. So I need to hang on to the resources and then give them as I feel appropriate. Uh, yeah, for those not uh, viewing, she's laughing hysterically or trying to hold it in. <laughs> I'm laughing because, okay, so um, I I wrote multiple blog posts during the pandemic about this idea of stockpiling or hoarding. And obviously when we're talking hoarding in this sense, we're not talking about the psychological disorder that we talked about before, but like panic buying and stocking. Um, and I each time I wrote, I wrote one near the beginning of the pandemic and then I wrote one relatively recently. Um, and every time I write one of those, um, that is the response I get from, uh, certain flavors of humanity that people are like, well, well, I stockpiled so that like I had stuff to give out to like my neighbors and friends. And I'm like, well, it's good that you helped out your neighbors and friends, but like, then you're choosing who gets the stuff. Whereas if you leave it, like if you just take one or two extra for yourself and then leave it in the store, like other people have access to it. You are limiting who has access to that. So that's why I was laughing really hard because that's, that's an answer that I get a lot to that. And I'm trying to be like, no, that's actually playing God. Like you're actually getting to decide who has access to the things. Um, and I'm not sure that's what Jesus called us to. I mean, I'm thinking about what's his name, Carnegie and kind of, that was the thing about many of those from the Gilded Age. And it's really being replicated today. I think from the likes of Gates and Zuckerberg, this kind of, I don't know, Neo, I don't know if there's a term, I'm going to make up this term if no one else has used it, this kind of Neo-Gilded Age, right, of a bunch of rich white guys thinking that they know best for what, um, you know, the poor poor need. Um, we, won't have, we won't have time to dive into it, but for folks listening who don't know, like, look up Carnegie Libraries and the story behind that, and it'll kind of make sense uh, what we're talking about. Um, we're, we've talked around it. So uh, obviously you've done a lot on Christian minimalism, including you just wrote a book. So talk a little bit about the book, how that came to be and what your goal is for the book. Yeah. So um, really excited that the book is out. Uh, it came out in May of this year. So it's still like hot off the presses, I guess you could say. Still has that new press smell, if that's a thing. I don't know. 
found books. <laughs> um, and so I blogged for a few years and I felt like maybe uh, a book might be helpful for folks now that it's been a bit. Um, and people, it was clear that people were interested in it. And so I was like, well, you know, it would be nice to have like a book so that it was this, this idea would be like condensed. So you wouldn't have to like, you know, search through the blog to find stuff The the book could be a more like small linear way to think about it. And yes, the book is very minimal. It's only 140 something pages. <laughs> so it's not like a tome. It's not like you have to, you know, spend forever reading it. Um, but basically, it's a mix between practical and theory. So there's the like, why are we doing this in the first place? But then also like some of the chapters have literally bullet points at the end that are like, here's some ways that you can put this in your own life. So it's uh, both and I think some people thought it was going to be like a lot of the decluttering books. Um, and then I can have a whole conversation about the decluttering movement and how it's different than minimalism, right? Like decluttering is like a one and done process and it's all about stuff and that's it. And like minimalism is a complete shift in worldview and lifestyle. And it's not just about stuff. And, and it's a continuous journey of figuring out what adds value to our lives. So um, my book is not a Christian decluttering guide. <laughs> so if you're, if you're looking for that, those do exist and they're wonderful. Um, it's, it's more of like, okay, what, how do we connect this idea of living more minimally with, with our Christian faith and spirituality? And then also, how can we do that practically um, in some ways as well? And there's, oh, and there's a reading with Fox section at the end. I always tell people that because um, it's in the table of contents, but people don't realize that. And they get to the end of the book and they see there's like discussion questions or, or reflection questions at the end. And they're like, man, I wish I knew that when I was reading the book. So, so there you go. There are read and reflect questions that you can use either by yourself or in groups. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I could see that kind of being as a good group discussion mm -hmm. for, for a church or community group. Yeah. And that's actually like my hope for the book is that it can, it can be in those types of settings. Um, I think that's, that's not something people usually think of when they write books, but like, I think it really lends itself to that. And the chapters are very small. So if you're like meeting, you know, once a week or once a month or whatever, it's not a huge time commitment to read each chapter. Um, and there's the read and reflect questions in the back. So I did the work for you. <laughs> you can just meet and like chat about it. And um, I think it really lends itself to that. So that'd be my goal for the book is that it, a lot of people in churches and other uh, faith-based groups get to use it that way. Nice. But, but if I'm hearing correctly, it's not like a Christian Marie Kondo. No, no. And that's what I keep trying to tell people. Like there's a couple reviews on Amazon where people are like, this didn't tell me how to do stuff, you know, it's like, they're like very angry about it. And I'm like, well, I didn't try to, like, I didn't, I, it wasn't a bait and switch. Like I never told you that that's what this was going to be. Right. Um, but there is some practical stuff in it too. It's not just theory. So it's, it's a combination of the two. Well, let me ask this. Let me shift a little bit before we take a break. Being that the podcast is called Future Christian, I'm thinking about the future. We're thinking about, you know, as we're recording this, it's uh, it's the fall of 2021, right, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've been in the pandemic life off and on 18 months. Um, there's news stories day in and day out about um, supply chain issues, you know, worker shortages. Like, uh I want to ask this and I'm, I want to get kind of, if I can get from you like a multifaceted, like philosophical, practical response. So like, is the future minimal uh, by choice, by necessity? Like, what do you think? Mm, that's a great question. Well, I, I'm trying to figure out which avenue to go with this, right? Because like the worker shortage is, is the great uh, resignation, if you will, where people are 
Well, that, which was very minimal in the sense of like people reassess their vocation and what they do, well, either their vocation and or what they do for money, right? Because they don't have to be the same thing. Um, and, and decided like they had been maltreated financially and personally for, and they didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and so that's like a whole conversation, right? <laughs> that's like very minimalist. Um, but also the idea of like, how has consumer culture messed, it, messed us up so much that these, these people felt the need to do that because they were not valued uh, financially or otherwise for their, for their work. So that's a like whole other conversation. Um, and so I think like since people have decided that that's not what they want to do and they don't want that for their lives anymore. Um, I think in some sense, we're going to have to think more minimally as far as like what, what the workforce looks like now and, and figure out ways, like how do we focus on what's most important? If most important is valuing our employees so that they feel valued and want to work there and find, and are able to, um, feel fulfilled in what they're doing. Um, then that means we have to treat them differently than we have been previously as like cogs in a wheel where they're interchangeable and we don't care about them. Yeah. So I don't know if that's what we were going for, but <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm thinking too, like, um, I'm thinking after nine 11, when president Bush kind of said, go out and spend money. Yeah. He totally told people to go shop. Like that was his answer. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, uh, I don't actually think I was alive for this, but as I've seen it and heard it, you know, like the 1980 election between Reagan and Carter, where Carter like called people to like, what was, what was the word? Um, kind of rein in oops we got a guest here kind of rein in spending versus you know reagan kind of promised like unended or unending like prosperity and spending you know i don't you're not an economist economist excuse me neither am i but i guess i just can't help wonder about these questions with you like like is this Oh, and then climate change, you know, to me, it's like, this is, has to happen. And I'm curious, like, uh, what are we doing? We just keep putting it off the inevitable. Is that, like, would you agree? Yeah, I think so. I mean, oh, there's so much here to think about because there's like the environmental impact and like the um, financial impact and, and how this really affects people at the ground level and not just like this micro like this macrochasm of like, okay, our world, blah, 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 which is great to talk about. But then like, okay, like in people's actual lives, what does this look like? Um, and, and like, for example, we found out that this system is not sustainable because in 2009, was it where we had the big crash yeah. the, or the big short, as some people call it in, in economy world. And like, that that should have been a wake up call to be like, we can't, this is not a sustainable way to live in consumer culture. And it like really wasn't, which is fascinating and also awful. Um, because like America was not always this consumerism place. Um, it happened in the fifties and sixties when basically like the madmen of advertising decided like, we want to make it so people will buy stuff and they were successful. And so now we, we think that this is like, the reality that we have to live in when in reality we can step outside of it in the sense of like, I don't want to live that way anymore. I mean, we still have to live in our culture, obviously, like, but we can be like, you know what, I'm getting off this hamster wheel. Like I'm not going to live in this cycle of dissatisfaction that consumer culture tells me I have to live in because they want me to keep buying stuff. And, um, also if it's not patriotic to buy stuff, like, 
which is also this huge myth that we perpetuate in American culture. We're like, oh, if you love your country, you'll go buy things. Well, no. Like, if you love your country, you will find ways to intentionally consume to help small businesses and those who need employment. <laughs> like, it's not about just like willy nilly throwing money everywhere and buying crap we don't need. So, um, re reframing your life to think more about how how can I live more simply so that everyone else has access to things and this distribution of wealth and goods and things is not a problem anymore. Well, this is great conversation. Well, let's take a quick break so I can give our little guest some milk. Um, but the book is Christian Minimalism, Simple Steps for Abundant Living. Uh, so let's take a quick break. Becca, give me a sec here and I'll no jump back on. <laughs> All right, we're back with Becca Ehrlich, and uh, the little guy has got some milk, so we'll see how he's happy for a few minutes. Uh, Becca, these closing questions, you can take them as seriously or not as you like to, uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what do, you, what do you want to do? What does that day look like? Yeah, so Lutherans are a little iffy on the Pope thing, so... <laughs> um, so I, I made it thinking about, like, presiding bishop. Sure, yeah, go for it. Um, so if I was presiding bishop for the day, I would honestly just want to travel around and like hear how people are doing ministry in different contexts. Cause I think that would be super fun. Love it. I do need to get like a, I do need to get like a Catholic on, um, cause they could probably most honestly answer the question perhaps, uh, most faithfully. I don't know. Uh, so if you know anybody, uh, send them my way. I will. I will. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> A theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Okay, so uh, it's a tie between C.S. Lewis and Amy Semple McPherson. Oh, interesting. Because both of them have some really cool things about them. Like, I would love to hear about the writing group that C.S. Lewis had with J.R.R. Tolkien and, like, those those folks. And then I also, like, want to hear about Amy Semple McPherson's, like, traveling around and, like, being one of the most popular preachers back in the day and like all of the revivals she was at. And then, um, she apparently got kidnapped at one point. She has a really interesting story. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. Um, but she was like the most popular preacher, um, and like preached out Billy Sunday basically. Wow. So, yeah. For our, she's for our mainline friends who may not know, give a, give a little glib detail or not a glib, but give a little bit about, uh, Amy Simple McPherson. Um, yeah, so she was kind of the, the precursor of the Pentecostalism movement in America, um, but like kind of shied away from that for a while and then came back to it. It's really kind of interesting. Um, but she also like traveled around the country and she's actually Canadian. So she traveled not just in the U.S., but like in Canada and, and um, overseas and things like that and um, was just known for like doing the Pentecostalism thing without doing the stuff around Pentecostalism that usually freaks people out. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like she would, she would preach and like, you know, the gifts of the spirit um, were encouraged, but there was like a separate tent for people who were like really moved to do those things that are very um, outward, I would say. Um, so that like, it didn't freak people out if like they hadn't been used to that before. So it was like this interesting way of being open to it, but also being like, if you're not like into this, that's okay. Like we'll have a, a, a separate set aside place for people. Um, and like, she used to preach like 12 sermons a week. I mean, it was not, she was all over the place and she was, and it's just cool that like early on in the 1900s that she like 
this was a woman who got to do this and had women on her staff. And she eventually um, founded the Foursquare denomination. That's what she's mostly known for. But um, yeah, she's just a really interesting figure in Christian history that we don't hear much about. Uh, for folks who are listening, and Becca, uh, the same season as your interview comes out, I have a leader from this Foursquare denomination uh, coming on. So Jesse, I don't know if I can see her name. I think Crookshank. Uh, is the guest. So uh, look out for that. It'll either come before or after yours, Becca. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? <laughs> Besides the pandemic. <laughs> hey, I mean, you it's yeah, that's why I put this on you for you to answer. <laughs> no, I really think, I mean, the church was already um, in, in a reformation, I would say. There's there's this theory that the church goes through a reformation every 500 years. <laughs> and so like we just, you know, celebrated the 500th year anniversary of like when Martin Luther nailed those things on the door and like started a, a reformation in the church. And so we're due for one. And I think we were already in one. And then the pandemic just sort of sped it up a bit. So, um, yeah, I think that that's that's what people are going to remember that if you're looking at Christianity, at least that like the church had a reformation that just got bounced into doing more, more change because of the pandemic. Yeah. What do you hope for the future? What do you hope comes out of this then? Yeah. I hope we don't just go back to the way things were. Yeah. I really don't like I, church wasn't working anymore the way it was functioning, at least in mainland Protestantism. I can't speak for all denominations, but um, it, it wasn't what we need now. Um, and so I think people were forced to figure that out in the pandemic. Um, I don't think everyone in mainline Protestantism was like, you know what? I want to be a televangelist because that's basically what everyone became. Right. right. <laughs> um, but like finding new and interesting ways to share God's love, um, that makes sense for your context, I think is really key. And I think that would be my hope for the future is that we're more open to that as opposed to just being like, oh, we've never done it that way before. Yeah. You know, when this, when this interview comes out, it'll probably be spring FYI of, uh, mm -hmm. for those listening, probably spring of 2022. And even now as we're recording this in late fall, I'm kind of lamenting that I, I feel like so many churches have just kind of like, just been happy to go back to the status quo and it breaks my heart to be honest it breaks my heart um but we don't have time to talk about that <laughs> where can people find out more about you and your book yeah so uh i still blog regularly at christianminimalism.com uh the book christian minimalism simple steps for abundant living is pretty much available wherever books are sold. Uh, there's also an ebook. There's a Kindle version. So if you uh, don't want physical clutter, you can get the ebook version as well. And uh, the Christian Minimalism Facebook page, the Christian Minimalism Community group attached to that Facebook page, and then uh, at Jesus Minimalism on both Twitter and Instagram is where you can find some inspiration of how to live more simply in Jesus's name. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for uh, sharing the microphone with her, my little guest. And uh, may God's peace be with you. And also with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. 
Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Yeah.